Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by, and welcome to the Intact Financial Corporation third quarter 2020 results call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star zero. I would now like to hand the conference over to one of your speakers for today, Ken Anderson, Senior Vice President, Investor Relations and Corporate Development. Please go ahead, Mr. Anderson. Thank you, Carl. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining the call today. A link to our live webcast and published information for this call is posted on our website at intactsc.com under the Investors tab. As usual, before we start, please refer to slide two for cautionary language regarding the use of forward-looking statements, which form part of this morning's remarks, and slide three for a note on the use of non-IFRS financial measures, and important notes on adjustments, terms, and definitions used in this presentation. Our executives are joining today from across the country. In Toronto, we have our CEO, Charles Brindamore, in Montreal are Louis Marcotte, CFO, Isabel Gerard, SVP of Personal Lines, and Patrick Barbeau, SVP of Claims. And joining from Calgary is Darren Godfrey, SVP of Commercial Lines. We'll begin with prepared remarks followed by the Q&A. With that, I'll turn the call to our CEO, Charles Brindamore. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us today. The pace of the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated in the last few months across North America, and it continues to cause significant pain and hardship on society. We're thankful for the dedication of healthcare professionals and frontline workers throughout this year. Businesses have an increasingly important role to play in protecting and supporting their communities through this crisis, especially if the second wave is more dramatic. We entered the crisis in a position of strength, which has enabled us to support our customers while protecting employees. To date, we've provided 510 million of relief to over 1.2 million policyholders. In response to the changing environment, our relief measures are evolving towards rate strategies based on our customers' changing risk profile and needs, accelerated deployment of our UBI offering to deliver savings to customers for safe driving habits and lower kilometers driven, innovative product enhancements in personal property to support work from home, and continued support for the most vulnerable small businesses through our ongoing policy and rate adjustments as well as a recently announced $50 million relief program to support approximately 100,000 customers in the small business area. 
It is our strong performance over the years that has enabled us to provide substantial relief to our customers. Now let's turn to results. Yesterday evening, we announced third quarter net operating income of $2.78 per share, an increase of 46% over Q3 2019. This led to an operating ROE of 17%. Our resilient operations, along with the tailwinds from our action plans over the years and benign weather, delivered a strong result. Top-line growth was a healthy 8% in the quarter, with Canada growing at 9% and the U.S. at 3%. The overall combined ratio was strong at 87.1%, with solid underwriting performance across purse lines and commercial lines. There were no direct COVID-19 provisions recorded in the quarter, as we again have seen no evidence to warrant the change to our initial Q1 provision. In Canada, the combined ratio of 86 was strong, driven by underlying performance and a low level of CATS, while U.S. commercial lines delivered a solid seasonal 94.5%. Let's now look at our results by line of business, starting with Canada. In personal auto, growth was strong at 8% as our relief measures have improved our competitive positioning, leading to high retention and robust new business. The combined ratio was solid at 84.9%, with the underlying loss ratio improving 9 points. The underlying improvement is driven by our profitability actions, changing mix, benign weather, and reduced driving activity. Driving activity itself has increased since last quarter and has stabilized slightly below pre-crisis levels. Overall, the fundamentals in personal auto are solid, and I expect this business to operate in the low end of the mid-90s range next year. Looking at the industry, rate momentum has been impacted by the crisis. However, with an industry combined ratio over 100% at Q2, we expect corrective measures to resume as claims frequency returns to historical level later. In personal property, premiums grew a strong 10% driven by market conditions, unit growth, and the GCNA acquisition. The combined ratio at 83.7% was driven by our profitability actions over time and benign weather conditions. Over the last decade, we've more than doubled the size of this business, while better protecting Canadians from the risk of climate change. At the same time, we've transformed our offering, advanced our pricing and risk selection, and moved deeper into the supply chain. Personal property performance is in the right zone, and I'm confident this will continue. In commercial lines, premium grew 11%, reflecting the GCN acquisition. Growth has decelerated as this segment is exposed to the economic slowdown. I know that SMEs in certain sectors are severely impacted by the crisis and the economic slowdown. 
We're here to support our small business customers through this difficult time, and our relief measures are ongoing and evolving. The 89.4% combined ratio in commercial lines reflected strong underlying performance and a low level of catastrophes. I expect this business to operate in the low 90s next year. While the hard market industry conditions in commercial PNC have returned, we continue to temper our rate increases for the most vulnerable small business customers. In commercial auto, the hard market conditions remain tempered by the crisis. Moving to our U.S. commercial segment, premiums grew 3% with the GCN acquisition adding five points. Lower volumes and lines impacted by the crisis, such as ride-sharing and entertainment, offset the strong organic growth in other lines. The underlying loss ratio improved 0.8 points driven by our ongoing profitability actions. The combined ratio at 94.5%, including three points of seasonality, was solid. This segment is positioned to hit our sustainable low 90s objective. The U.S. commercial market is hardening and we expect it to continue. On the strategic front, our teams haven't missed the beat advancing our long-term roadmap. Expanding our leadership position in Canada's front and center, and we've made significant progress. First, our customer experience is second to none. We reached a significant milestone in Bel Air Direct with three out of four customers digitally engaged with us. Our mobile apps continue to lead across Canada with the Bel Air Direct and Intact Insurance taking the two top spots in the app store in the insurance category. And as economies have reopened, our digital engagement across our claims, apps, and UBI have all remained at record level. Second, BrokerLink recently surpassed $2 billion of premiums as it continues to grow organically and through acquisitions. The growth story isn't done as we've set a new premium target of $3 billion for BrokerLink. And finally, the integration of GCN is progressing really well. We're on pace to meet our financial objective on this transaction. Building a leading specialty lines player is another one of our main strategic pillars, and our execution is continuing. In September, we acquired International Bond and Marine, a leader in the U.S. customs bond market. This stuck-in was in line with our strategy of finding opportunities where we can leverage our manufacturing capacity, gain deep expertise in specialty markets, and capture an ongoing growing stream of distribution earnings. In October, we brought together our Canadian and U.S. specialty platforms under a single brand. Impact Insurance Specialty Solutions. This is an important step as we build a world-class specialty platform. There's significant growth potential in this business through organic and inorganic opportunities as we drive towards our objective of six billion of premiums running in the low 90s. Finally, we've reinforced our commitment to be a best employer and support our employees through this difficult time. We've ramped up training and awareness around mental health issues, enhanced our diversity and inclusion strategy, and invested more in learning and development. These initiatives have helped 
drive an all-time high employee engagement across our organization as measured in September. As well, for 2020, we're recognized again as a best employer in both Canada and the U.S. Our up performance mindset is what sets us apart from our competitors. It drives us to deliver our promise to customers, to support our communities, to transform our competitive advantages, and to build a world-class insurer. In conclusion, we've made significant progress on our strategy while delivering strong results. We ended the quarter with a robust capital margin, ready to manage potential shocks and invest in strategic opportunities that will come. Our book value is up 10% year over year, and we're delivering a mid-teens operating ROE. Our employees have made this outperformance possible, and I want to thank them for their continued focus and hard work. We have the best team, our business is very resilient, and we're very well positioned to surpass our financial objectives in the years ahead. With that, I'll turn the call over to our CFO, Louis Marcotte. Thanks, Charles, and good morning, everyone. The crisis continues to have an impact on society, and we remain committed to supporting our customers, brokers, and employees throughout these uncertain times. With this in mind, we recently launched a $50 million targeted relief program for our small business customers, bringing our total relief to $510 million and covering over 1.2 million customers. These new targeted measures will be entirely written and earned in Q4 2020 in Canada commercial lines. During the third quarter, the relief measures impacted our written premiums by five points and our net earned premiums by one point. The unearned portion of the relief measures will impact net earned premiums in future quarters, offsetting the impact of reduced frequency. At the end of Q3, incurred losses related to COVID were less than $40 million, with more than 85% of reported claims already paid and closed. We are therefore confident that our provision for both COVID-related direct losses and bad debt remain adequate. Moving to results, we delivered strong net operating results of $411 million, up close to 50% versus last year, driven by strong underwriting and distribution performances. Underwriting income grew 86% over last year, driven by our profitability actions and benign weather combined with higher earned premiums. This was partially offset by our continued relief measures. Net investment income of $143 million was down 2% compared to last year. This was mainly due to lower reinvestment yields, partially offset by higher invested assets from the GCNA acquisition. All else being equal, we expect net investment income for Q4 to be similar to Q3, reflecting lower yields. Distribution EBITDA and other income grew 45% in a quarter, driven by underwriting profitability, organic and inorganic growth, including the additions of FCC and onside, as well as disciplined expense management. On a year-to-date basis, distribution income grew 24%, above our earlier expectations. When including Q4 earnings, we expect full-year growth to be around 20%. Now let me provide some additional detail on the underwriting results, beginning with Canada. 
Our action plans and our improved competitive positioning in auto led to solid results as units grew six points in the quarter and profitability was at 84.9. The improvement was driven by a combination of better weather conditions, our profitability actions, lower driving activity, offset by relief measures. With regards to our decision to exit the BC auto market, this will have a negligible impact on our underwriting performance. In personal property, organic growth was largely fueled by unit growth and a high retention ratio. The combined ratio improved five points, mainly driven by our profitability action and mild weather. Conversely, the expense ratio increased 2.1 points, driven by higher variable commissions due to strong underwriting performance. In our Canadian commercial lines, we saw premium growth of 11% in Q3, mostly driven by GCNA. The combined ratio of 89.4% reflected a solid improvement of, of 2.4 points in the underlying performance, mainly driven by lower claims frequency and our profitability actions. The Canadian expense ratio of 29.8% for the quarter increased two points from last year. This was mainly driven by higher variable commissions due to continued improvements in our underwriting performance. We expect the full-year expense ratio to be in line with our year-to-date figures. Turning to U.S. commercial. Keep in mind when looking at our Q3 results in U.S. that there are three or four points of unfavorable seasonality. Having said that, the underlying loss ratio of 57.3% in the quarter improved 0.8 points, which was largely driven by our profitability actions, including migrating to a more profitable business mix. Despite the high level of CAT activity, we've seen across the U.S. landscape, none of these events generated losses that met our own CAT threshold. It has, however, impacted non-CAT losses in the quarter. The U.S. expense ratio of 39.2% was 0.8 points higher than last year, mainly due to the addition of GCNA's surety business. We expect the full-year expense ratio in the U.S. to be slightly lower than our year-to-date figures. Our operating performance led to an operating ROE of close to 17%. In terms of our outperformance, we've generated 690 BIPs during the first half of 2020, well above our objective of 500 BIPs. Now looking at our balance sheet, we ended the quarter in a strong financial position with a total capital margin of 1.9 billion and debt to total capital ratio of 21.2%. We remain on track to reach our 20% target over the next six to 12 months. We also have 500 million of cash at the holding company and our 750 million credit facility is entirely undrawn. Our book value per share increased 4% since June 30th to 56.22, thanks to solid earnings and favorable capital markets. Before concluding, I'd like to draw your attention to the risk of an impairment loss of 96 million pre-tax in Q4 related to the equities that have not yet rebounded from the pre-crisis levels. This may change due to market fluctuations. But as a reminder, the impairment will not impact our capital position nor our book value per share. Overall, we have maintained a position of strength throughout this crisis and that has allowed us to continue to support over a million customers coast to coast. We are well positioned right now, both from a profitability and a balance sheet perspective, while the fundamentals of our business remain solid on both sides of the border. We stand ready to deploy capital as opportunities arise during these uncertain times to add further value for our shareholders. With that, I will turn the call back to Ken. Thank you, Louis. In order to give everyone a chance to participate in the Q&A, we would kindly ask you to limit yourselves to two questions per person. If there's time at the end, you can certainly requeue for follow-ups. 
So, Carl, we're now ready to take questions. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, please press the pound or hash key. Our first question comes from James Gloin from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks, and uh, good morning. Good morning, James. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to uh, uh, dig into the uh, the M&A picture uh, first off, and uh, it, can you just re, uh, reiterate what you're uh, what you're seeing in terms of uh, opportunities? Uh, nice tuck in with uh, with IBM, but uh, you know, looking at the excess capital of three to five hundred million, and then the uh, the credit line facility as well uh, at your disposal. Uh, how are, uh, how is that part of the a picture evolving. Well, thanks for your question, uh, James. Yeah, the uh, acquisition in the U.S. that you just pointed to, uh, IBM, is very consistent with the strategy we've laid out to build a distribution footprint in the U.S. to really help scale up some of our uh, operations. In this case, our surety operation, expand our reach, and at the same time build our distribution earnings stream, which, as you've seen, is uh, very healthy uh, and growing. Now, your question is bigger than that, James, I recognize. And, you know, our thesis is is very much intact, 15 to 20 points of market share here in Canada will change hands in the coming years. We think that with an industry running in the single-digit ROE range with the dislocation that is taking place, uh, globally, and the pressure that COVID, you know, is, is putting on, on institutions here and abroad, we think that, um, you know, this is a, a good environment in the coming months, coming years for, um, for consolidation to take place. That's the first point. And as you know, uh, expanding our position in Canada is our, our number one priority when it comes to capital deployment. Um, second point I would make James, is that there's a fair bit of activity at the distribution level in Canada as well. Uh, the um, you know joint venture we have with a number of brokers, and then BrokerLink also very healthy, healthy deal uh, pipeline, and really bulking up and helping a number of players, including BrokerLink, to to consolidate the space. And again, you can see the uh, distribution income earning stream here, uh, you know, being a reflection of that activity. Uh, Clearly, if you move south of the border, when you look at the performance of of our U.S. platform, now known as Intact Insurance Specialty Solutions, you see that this is really operating in the zone that we were looking for before deploying capital, that is low 90s, Um, you know, and if you take season into account, that's very much where the business operates now. You know, we would look to deploy capital in that space, but, you know, we need to find a target that bulks up the strategy that we're focused on uh, in the U.S., but I see an opportunity to consolidate, you know, a portion of that market uh, as well. So I would say in aggregate, I think we are in a very healthy environment to advance our consolidation and acquisition strategy, and uh, and we think that 
you know, there are opportunities to leverage our skills at integrating and creating outperformance on a bigger base. Thank you for that. And uh, second question, just uh, digging into the into the U.S. operations, uh, organic growth was down three uh, percent, or sorry, two percent, I guess, uh, year over year in this quarter, um, primarily on the rideshare and entertainment businesses. Can you can you talk about the the organic growth outlook for um, for the other lines, or even those lines as well, uh, as we head into Q4 and then into 2021? What you're seeing in terms of uh, uh, unit growth and uh, and rate growth in the in the U.S. Yeah, so I, I think you know high level, the market in the U.S. is hard, uh, broadly speaking. And when I look at our own business, and you know I leave aside uh, the noise that uh, COVID has related in terms of business activity, I see it as an upper single digit growth story. Quite frankly. Um, we've seen throughout the year, James, that you know most of the lines of business that are not under profitability improvement plan are growing in the teens. The lines of business that are under profitability improvement plan have been shrinking. I see that uh, work, you know, diminishing next year because there's been so much heavy lifting that's been done by uh, our teams that are trying to improve performance. That all in. We view um, 2021 for the U.S. biz as upper single-digit sort of performance, um, a combination of rates tapping into the hard market, you know, um, and then some unit growth uh, as well. But very healthy organic growth profile there. I don't know. I see uh, Darren is nodding uh, in Calgary. Darren, do you want to add, add a bit of, uh, of color? No, I think the only thing I would add there, Charles, is you're right in terms of Q3, obviously, some of the COVID sort of economic sectors, you can think of sharing economy, and you can think about uh, entertainment, for example, where we saw some top-line pressure, as expected. Um, if we somewhat um, look at the other lines of business, um, we're in the upper single, close to double-digit range growth. Uh, in the U.S. on those other lines of business. So again, and uh, very consistent uh, with what we would expect uh, moving forward into 21 as well. Thank you. Our next question comes from Michael Phillips from Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Hey, thanks. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I guess first question is on you know a lot of talk on digital and uh, in personal auto on on UBI. I guess how much of that do you think that the UBI uptick is more temporary because the times we're in um, versus a, a longer term trend that you think should sustain uh, once we get out of the COVID crisis? Well, um, I don't think it's temporary. I think that uh, it is it is a trend. Clearly, there's been a, a jump. Uh, during COVID. But Michael, we've been very proactive for the past four years to build a massive uh, telematics or UBI uh, program. And we're clearly, you know, in the current context where it makes eminent sense for people to embrace that technology. I've been, you know, pushing this 
as a product that is really good for customers. The reason why I, I don't see this coming down uh, is because of the fact that the, the telematics offer is actually evolving a fair bit. And what you'll see at Impact and Better Direct in early 2021 is a broad range of value-added services that will be provided as part of our telematics offering. So it will not just be about how well and how much you drive and what it means for your price. It'll be about your driving experience and what Impact or Better Direct uh, can do for you. And we'll clearly tap on these new features as we enter into 2021 to make sure that the trend goes up. And you'll also see uh, that the marketing game plan will very much back up uh, this notion. We have a big lead in telematics, and we want to make sure that we accelerate that lead uh, going into 2021. And as, as I said, it is in touch with times and what people are going through in terms of changing habits. And so uh, we're quite bullish about what telematics uh, can do for our business and uh, we'll press the accelerator in the coming months. Okay, uh, th thanks, Charles. I guess uh, second question, shifting gears, um, on your decision to combine the Canadian operations in the U.S. under kind of one roof, uh, the specialty operations there under one roof, um, it, it, was that more of a, of a marketing play to, to, to do so, or are there maybe expected synergies that can come from, from doing that? You know, the synergies, in my mind, are independent of the brand. I think we have, uh, you know, acquired a business in the U.S., and Mike Miller and team have done a phenomenal job, in my mind, to really connect our value offering and specialty lines in Canada with our value offering uh, in the U.S. And I think we've also established very strong cross-border capabilities and in a number of segments like entertainment, uh, marine, surety, et cetera, we truly have a North American offering. So it just makes sense at this stage to operate under one brand and a brand that is distinct uh, for specialty lines as we embark on the second leg of our growth in specialty lines uh, where we see a ton of opportunities you know, in, in that segment, broadly speaking. So it was more, you know, people ask me when we did the acquisition, how about the brand? And I said, brand is day two. Well, this is day two. Um, it's just a normal continuation. But from an expense and synergy point of view, you know, we really have um, achieved what we wanted to achieve with the U.S. platform. And I don't know, Louis, if you want to add some color on that point. The branding exercise was not done with a major expense plane mind. No, I would uh, agree with you, Charles, here. The, most of the synergies were extracted early on. I would say maybe there's still a bit more to be done on, on the claim side, internalization uh, and process, but, um, and that you're seeing flow through quarterly as we uh, improve the results. But the pure synergies were achieved, uh, I will say, probably in the first uh, 18, 24 months of the transaction. Okay, th thank you, guys. Uh, congrats on the quarter and, and all the best going forward. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Our next question comes from Jeff Kwan from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, just morning, had a Jeff. Question on, uh, yeah, I had a question on personal auto 
pricing. Just wondering where you see yourselves versus peers. Like, do you think there is still more room that they need to catch up to you on pricing? Um, just trying to understand is like if we see further rate increases from them, that could help your uh, policies enforce growth and DPW DPW growth. Yeah. You know, Jeff, this is uh, sort of the question of the moment, quite frankly, because uh, the team, you know, and I were surprised by the strength of our growth in Q3. Uh, and in fact, I think there was, you know, everybody's surprised by the speed of our, our growth in, uh, in personal automobile in Q3. Relief was largely in line with what, uh, you know, we had uh, guided before, but clearly, the new business flow uh, is very strong, and then the retention is at an all-time high, and that's clearly a sign that um, you know the industry is catching up to some of the heavy lifting we've been doing uh, over the past three years, and uh, and we're entering in I think this period where growth uh, comes at a healthier clip now that we're in the zone we were aiming for. Um, and we're very happy to grow in this sort of uh, environment. I'll ask Isabel, maybe she wants to provide a bit of color in terms of competitive positioning without sharing all the, uh, the tricks with our competitors who always listen to those earnings call. Thanks, uh, Charles. No, I think to, to add to what you just said, I think the fact that we were um, fighting cost inflation in automobile for already a, a long period of time, we were already entering 2020 in a position of strength, and the relief measure we have put in place has brought our competitive positioning in a very good spot. Uh, and as Charles mentioned, uh, that's uh, part of why we saw a good growth in, in Q3. So new business uh, levels are, are robust, and uh, that is to be uh, expect to continue a bit in Q4. Or four, there's, of course, there is a, a still moving pieces, but we think our competitive positioning is is very good as we speak. Yeah, okay, I think one of one of the nuances that Isabella has just made, uh, Jeff, is that you know we launched a big relief effort in late March, and we stepped up the relief effort uh, in, in automobile, and it was needs-based and risk-based. And I think what we've done in the second part of the summer is basically uh, reflected a portion of the relief that we want to provide customers in our rate position. And, uh, and it's, you know, clearly uh, the response is, is very strong, so we're quite, quite pleased with that. Okay, perfect. And just my second question was, um, I know it's a really small part of your business, but staying on personal auto, um, the decision to pull out of the BC market. I'm just curious uh, whether or not it was something that happened maybe a bit before you made the decision or after, just if there's been any discussions with the government, because obviously this is effectively reducing competition. Um, and then what, what would you need to see for you to uh, contemplate re-entering the BC market if you were to do it at some point in the future? Yeah, oh, you're right that you know it's not a big part of the uh, portfolio and uh, you know Louis will give you a bit of perspective on on what it means you know from a top line point of view uh, but look Jeff I mean we've been at it uh, for 20 plus years and as you know you're trying to compete on a small part of the marketplace against a monopoly 
who subsidizes one part with the other has made it very difficult. And, you know, it's one of the areas of the organization, probably the only area of the organization where hope was part of the strategy. And I'd say in the last year we lost hope um, there. It, I think what would be needed, um, and we've got the capabilities, you know, to serve the marketplace extremely well in BC. We're fully equipped to run. I, I think the way to go in BC is to open up competition uh, across across the board, uh, basically, and uh, and compete against the uh, you know the the platform in place now. But you know to compete in a small part of the market, which the monopoly is subsidizing, is just untenable from a strategic point of view. We thought people would sort of you know eventually realize that the best thing for drivers in British Columbia would be to open up competition we just don't see that happening at this stage and we've got so many growth opportunities now on the platform that we've decided to redirect our efforts uh, where you know private markets operate effectively and where we can give customers the best deal we can okay thank you our next question comes from John Aiken from Barclays. Please go ahead. Good morning, Louis. I, I appreciate all the guidance that you gave us for the uh, for the fourth quarter. Um, just wanted to talk about uh, the distribution uh, EBITDA for a moment. Can you remind me about the seasonality expected in Q4, given uh, the expected drop off in the fourth quarter from the third quarter, based on your 20% growth target? Uh, yeah, so I guess historically it's probably in the uh, 24, 25 percent or quarter of the, the earnings in the in the fourth quarter. So um, that would be you know historical. Having said that, it fluctuates a bit based on when uh, the brokers will record some CPC, uh, and so we have to be careful with the variations. And, and the guidance we I provided earlier was really meant to say uh, there's 46 percent growth in in Q3. Don't well, let's not carry this over into Q4 because that's not what it, how it's going to work. So um, th this is what we're we're trying to sort of uh, clarify in giving the overall year um, uh, guidance, if you want. So I'd be careful. Normally, I would say you'd expect to have a light Q1, a heavy Q2, and then the other half of earnings spread between Q3 and Q4. Um, but it does vary a bit. And um, I want it to be specific enough so that you have the right idea of what Q4 will look like in terms of what we expect. Fantastic. Thank you. And then um, in terms of the, uh, the personal auto uh, claims ratio, obviously we saw uh, a step back in the, in the quarter because of the, the number of uh, kilometers driven. But are we seeing uh, the increase in the claims ratio? Is that actually commensurate with the, the amount of kilometers driven? Of course, X, uh, the impact accounts. Isabel, maybe you want to, I think in the context of Canada, it's always better to compare quarter uh, one year from the next because there are seasonal patterns uh, here. And uh, Isabel, why don't you explain high level uh, the underlying improvement in, in personal auto and how it largely breaks down, and then we'll give you a perspective on uh, what driving uh, as shown uh, throughout the summer uh, right until today. Is that it? Yeah, sure. 
So in terms of uh, looking at the improvement in the underlying loss ratio in Q3 versus the same period last year, we're, we're seeing about nine points of improvement, and we estimate that three quarters of this improvement is coming from our actions, so mainly rate action, risk selection actions, and claims actions we have taken in, in the past. So, and that the remaining quarter would be explained by the benign cost environment that were in due to the pandemic, net of the relief we, we gave, uh, and the different uh, mix of claims. So that's what uh, we, uh, we see in our, our improvement versus last year's. In, in terms of driving, uh, what I can say is that since April, as we said last quarter, Driving is returning progressively since then and in, at an increasing pace. That varies, I would say, a bit by province as governments uh, were e either reopening the economies or, or uh, adding new restrictions at a different point in time. But since the summer, we're still seeing the driving level increasing. I would say that as we speak today, we're still below normal levels in terms of, of driving. And in terms of frequency, as the driving was increasing, um, we saw the frequency also uh, increasing uh, at the same time. Uh, and since uh, the end of the summer, frequency has stabilized as well below normal levels. So that's what we see today. But driving is uh, now, you know, sitting here uh, within 10% of what it's been uh, historically, basically. Yes. Uh, severity is up a bit, but uh, driving is roughly within 10% now, fluctuating across the land. Thank you. I'll, I'll recue. Thanks. Our next question comes from Brian Meredith from UBS. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Um, Charles, I'm just curious. You know you've talked about it just a little bit, but um, I was a little surprised at the outlook with respect to personal auto drug premium written growth for the fourth quarter um, of just kind of mid to high single digits. Um, I would have thought without any premium relief coming through, it, it could be double digits. Um, maybe a little color around that? Yeah. Uh, Isabel, do you want to provide a bit of uh, a bit of perspective there? Yeah, sure. So as we explained a bit earlier, a Q2 growth at 8%, including the impact of, of relief, was really driven by uh, our improved competitive positioning and, and driven in part by IRA retention and robust mm -hmm. new business. So uh, that's why, as we are sitting here today, our best guidance for our Q4 growth would be mid to single, uh, mid to high single digits for for Q4, knowing that we have uh, moving our we've moved from our relief uh, program to um, rate strategies, and as I said, I expect that uh, us and uh, other players may continue to move as well. So that's why our guidance is aligned with the growth we saw in uh, in Q3. Gotcha. So competition is picked up. Is I guess what you're saying. But I guess competition is reacting to inflation as we as we do. Gotcha, gotcha. And then, Charles, I'm just curious your your guidance with respect to um, the personal auto combined ratio next year, kind of the the, the low end of the the mid to low you know uh, 90s as you're talking about. Is that contemplating some normalcy in the in the claims frequency environment? 
No, I think that we're expecting that we'll be a bit in a lull uh, in, in 2021 from a okay. driving and frequency point of view, and uh, we we do expect it return to normal driving levels. That is bridging the small gap we're seeing now by year end. Um, you know, and to a certain extent, it is reflected in our uh, temporary price position, which we're equipped to reverse should driving return back to normal. But when I look at the overall uh, cost environment at the moment and some of the work that we've been doing, which is flowing through our performance and mix and quality of portfolio, we think we'll be at the low end of the mid-90s sort of range, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. Great. Thank you. Okay. Our next question comes from Tom McKinnon from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Good morning. Um, morning uh, I've heard uh, retention mentioned more on this call than normal, and uh, um, I get the impression that some of the pre uh, premium relief measures are helping with retention. If you can clarify that, is that strictly in personal auto? And uh, um, what's going to happen? Maybe you can put some metrics around retention as well just to show how much it has improved and what's going to happen when some of these relief measures kind of wear off? Do you think the retention is going to uh, change at all? And have you experienced what's retention like outside of personal auto and personal property or maybe in commercial where you've given some hard pressed industries some, some relief as well and I have a follow up. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, Tom, I, you know, we'll ask Isabelle and uh, Darren to share a perspective on what they see in their respective lines of business. But I would say, you know, from my own point of view, historical high uh, across the board in terms of, uh, of retention. And I think it is a function of tight market capacity in both uh, auto as well as, uh, as commercial lines. And... Uh, and the heavy lifting we've been doing for three years, which is also, you know, um, slowly eroding from a competitive disadvantage point of view, and all of this is um, is, is paying off. But uh, why don't we uh, kick it off with uh, Darren and commercial lines, and then we'll go to Isabel. Tom, so as you would expect, I mean, obviously there's different sectors um, within the portfolio uh, experiencing uh, different profiles given the economic realities of the crisis today. So when you think about um, more on the, the more vulnerable customer side, so you can think about hospitality and retail, we do see a little bit of pressure there from a cancellation standpoint. Um, not not material, but, but definitely there's a little bit of pressure there. On other segments of the portfolio which are not as impacted by the economics, um, we, we see... Um, either flat or, or slightly improved retention. Um, so again, it very much depends upon sort of where we're at, sort of an economic cycle standpoint. Um, new business levels uh, are starting to pick up as well too. It's a reflection of, I think, uh, capacity challenges within the marketplace. Obviously, we've been very cautious and prudent relative to quality, um, but uh, definitely I think the growth profile is changing a little bit. But again, um, it, it's difficult to make broad brush comments because it is very much sector by sector uh, that we're watching very, very carefully. Obviously, I mean, obviously we, you saw the announcement around our relief program there to further support our most vulnerable um, PNC customers there, 100,000 customers coast to coast. 
So we, we believe that will help as well. Um, but again, we're monitoring wave two in particular and uh, modulating rates as we need to based on the crisis as it uh, unfolds. But Tom, maybe if I put some numbers on that, Baron, correct me if I'm wrong, but historically in commercial lines, you'd be in the upper 80s in terms of retention in units, that is in units I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, if you look at uh, September, for instance, you're in the 91% range. So a couple of points of retention change like this is uh, is very good because we know that the the more loyal slash mature business is always better business uh, in terms of loss ratio performance. So a nice pickup in uh, in commercial lines. Let's look at first lines, uh, Isabel. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, part of uh, the various form of relief we have provided was uh, in rate tempering or rate increases at renewal, and that's cause uh, in retention to increase accordingly. So in, in both lines, I would say. So in personal auto, as an example, a bit like Charles was mentioning in commercial, we were running in the upper 80s and low 90s retention ratios in units. And in Q3, we saw, as an example, the retention ratio uh, increasing close to 94%, so meaning that we're keeping 94% of our clients at renewal. So uh, that's, that's one of the highest points we, we saw in retention in the last 24 to, to 36 months. So uh, that, that contributed to the, the growth we saw in, in Q2 in personal lines in general. Yeah, and I would say, Isabel, when you say 24 to 36 months, I would, uh, I'd go so far as to say uh, probably 20 years. Uh, 90, 93%, 94% combined uh, retention in personal automobile is extremely high, uh, and we're seeing very strong retention in both, both channels. So uh, we're quite pleased with that. And, in fact, if you look at what most people expected from a top-line point of view in auto, and what we expected versus what actually happened, I'd say 40% of the spread uh, in, in expectations was driven by retention. 40% of the spread uh, then was driven by new business generation. So, uh, you know, very pleased with, with that. Okay, thanks. And then the, the second question has to do with uh, um, disruptors. You know, we just saw another one kind of come out here, uh, IPO recently, Root got lemonade. I mean, some of these aren't necessarily in in Canada, but they are potential disruptors. Uh, to what extent maybe Amazon or Facebook might come into that play as well. I mean, they have a they use social media to market. That I just assume gives them some sort of distribution edge. And uh, you know, can they replicate your pricing or segmentation edge as well? Um, what are you doing to defend your your space against these uh, potential disruptors? Uh, is uh, is it simply just by trying to change mix, or uh, um, maybe you can discuss some of the points around that? Sure. I think, Tom, um, we've been focused on disruption for 10 years, I would say. Uh, we've been far more focused on preparing for disruption than competing with our existing competitors, uh, quite frankly. And you know, for disruption to actually take effect, you need, in our book, two things. You need better design, 
and you need better value for money. Um, and so, you know, if you've got both, then you can promote it at scale. You've got a good shot at potentially uh, disrupting. So if you look at the agenda that we've presented to investors over the past decade, uh, you'll see that there's been a lot of focus on the digital tools, the role of our design lab, uh, and the customer experience, broadly speaking. You'll have seen that we are uh, dramatically uh, changing the experience in the direct channel through our insurance simplified project, and you've seen in the direct channel a big drop in the expense ratio uh, to make sure that we can compete on affordability um, uh, or, or just value for money if somebody came in to do things dramatically differently. You've seen us invest aggressively in our brands, both Intact Insurance and Better Direct, who are the two leading insurance brands in the country. And the other thing you've seen, Tom, is a big focus on creating optionality and distribution. You've seen us build Intact Insurance, then bring Intact Insurance online, even though we distribute for brokers. You've seen the buildup of Bel Air Direct. Then you've seen us build a, a, a massive first-line distribution platform with multi-options, which uh, also provides a ton of op op optionality. So that is on the sales, uh, distribution, and customer relationship side of things. The other edge that is very significant is the product we actually deliver, and by that I mean claims. Our perspective when it comes to disruption, that the work we're doing to get our customers back on track in the physical world is quite differentiating. And so uh, it is differentiating from a cost point of view, and it is different, differentiating from an experience point of view. So the whole insourcing of the supply chain process and taking in charge the experiences, we see a differentiator with, uh, with often how people see the claims process as a financial transaction. We don't see the claims process as a financial transaction. We see the claims process as getting our customers back on track and we've built quite a force there. The last point I would make, Tom, is the importance of uh, data in the disruptive process. And as you know, you could say we're a data shop. We've been harvesting our own structured data sets for decades. Uh, we're tapping into unstructured data sets. We're tapping into external data sets. Telematics is a great example of a massive program that we have uh, built, and it's all backed up by a huge team of um, uh, machine learning experts in our data lab, a few hundred people, in addition to the data experts uh, that we have in the rest of the organization. And so, you know, when you stack all that together, uh, I would say, you know, we're paranoid, of course, that's, that's our makeup, but... Uh, you know, we're quite equipped to, to phase distribution. And the last point I would make in terms of optionality is you've seen in the past three, four years uh, a lot of emphasis on commercial lines, specialty lines, and opening up a big pipeline of growth in that segment to make sure that 
should there be growth pressure uh, in purse lines, in part because of disruption or change in, in, in how people move, uh, we've got big pipelines of growth uh, outside as well. I, you know, I don't think we, there's a depend, dependency on that, but our strategy is one of uh, plenty of optionality. Okay, thanks so much for the color. Pleasure. Our next question comes from Mario Mendonca from TV Securities. Please go ahead. Morning, everyone. Uh, first on, I want to clarify um, some guidance you've already offered. I think you said that you'd expect mid to high single digit growth in direct written premium personal auto in Q4. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, you did. Yeah. Thank you. And can you offer anything about 2021? Uh, because presumably the premium relief will continue throughout, would I be correct in saying the entire year or at least the first half of the year? Yeah, I think that's fair, uh, Mario. I would, I'd be inclined to think about 2021 in the uh, mid-single-digit uh, range. The thing you need to keep in mind is that uh, the exit of BC uh, will be I think a point and a half. Uh, Louis, can you confirm? That's 1. right. 6 or something. Yeah. So, uh, look, uh, Mario, the, you, we've been surprised by the pickup, so to speak, in the last two, three months. So, you know, we're, we're thinking about auto with BC in the mid-single-digit range in 2021. Uh, but subject to adapting to the environment. That's our best guess at this stage. And that's that's despite the premium relief. Yeah, that's all in. So let me help me think this through. I, I've I've been in the notion that at some point the frequency would increase the um, or return to normal. The premium relief would still be in place and it could result in some lengthy quarters. I think that was the word you used to describe this earlier on in the process. Is that no longer your view? Is it fair to say now that the premium relief is being matched up with a gradual increase in frequency? There is nothing really abrupt happening here that could cause uh, lumpy quarters? We we don't see uh, abruptness. I think what we see, Mario, is, you know, uh, running the business, of course, taking seasonality into account uh, at this stage, at the low end of the mid-'90s, uh, but we don't expect too much lumpiness uh, as a result of, of relief at this stage. Isabel, do you want to add any color to Mario's question? No, I think you're right, Charles. The only color I would love is that we also have uh, earned uh, increased momentum going on. So even if we have relief that will be earned to, throughout Q4 in 2021, we'll still have uh, earned increased momentum on top of the benign cost environment we, we are operating in. So I think uh, that's why uh, we're believing that we'll be able to operate at the lower end of the mid-90 range in personal auto. Yeah, keep in mind, Mario, there was a lot of heavy lifting done pre-COVID uh, here that is uh, still earning through the system. Okay, thank you. Okay. Our next question right. comes from Paul Holden from CIBC. Please go ahead. Thank you. So first question I want to ask is regarding the distribution EBITDA. 
so the guidance for the year is helpful. I'm wondering if you can help us um, with those contingent commissions. How much is that added to growth in 2020? And what I'm really trying to get to here is for 2021, the growth is likely going to be a little bit below normal because of that, and that's that, that's what I'm really trying to solve for. So anything you can help with on contingent commissions or otherwise would be uh, would be appreciated. Yeah, that's I, I think um, profit sharing uh, indeed. But Louis, why don't you unpack that for Paul? Sure, Paul. So let's um, let's unpack year to date. Uh, you know, as one example here, we're around 23, 24% growth. About uh, 10% is our existing broker plant, what we would consider uh, organic growth, and that would include the impact of CPC. Then you have about five points, which is uh, the result of MA, so the inorganic impact on BrokerLink and our other brokers. And then the remainder would be the impact of adding on site and FCC. So that, that's roughly the, the three main components uh, that we expect. Uh, going into uh, next year, um, the pace will slow, but it's still expected to be a, a fairly uh, healthy growth pace. And um, this, the, the sharing here, of course, on-site and, and FCC will become organic, I would say, here. Um, the M&A uh, impact is probably similar to what we've had here to date. So uh, mid-single-digit uh, area. And then uh, we do expect a higher contribution from um, on-site and, and FCC next year uh, that will juice up a bit the growth. And that's simply accelerating the earnings, uh, mostly at the on-site side, uh, into uh, 2021. So uh, I would say next year, an expectation probably uh, slightly above 10% and um, split between organic, a bit of an M&A, and then top up with the on-site uh, NFCC. Perfect, that's very helpful. Um, second question is related to net investment uh, income, obviously seeing some pressure on refinancing uh, rates. I guess the question is, are, are, are there any shifts that are taking place in the investment portfolio to offset that reinvestment pressure, um, either actions taken to date or things you're contemplating uh, over the next uh, 12 months? I don't expect major shifts in the portfolio. These are, um, uh, I will say, tweaks here and there in the portfolio. We're very cautious, as you know, uh, and there is um, you know, some, uh, some pressure clearly. Going one way, we're seeing a bit of erosion. On the other side, growth in assets. So uh, to some extent, they, they offset each other and help us uh, sort of alleviate the pressure here. But you would not expect us to take, um, you should not expect us to take massive moves here in terms of our, our asset mix um, or investment style to, uh, to chase higher yields. We do on the margin, but it's, it's not uh, huge changes and it doesn't um, move the risk envelope uh, very much. Got it. No, Thank on you. the contrary, on the contrary, I would say uh, that uh, we've taken, you know, a cautious position on the asset side of the house uh, early in the crisis to be able to defend against volatility, uh, but also to make sure that, uh, you know, at all points 
in this crisis, we would be in a position to take advantage of opportunities. So uh, reaching for yield and extending the risk envelope has not been uh, one bit our approach to date. Thank you for that. Our next question comes from Doug Young from Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. I get to say good afternoon. Um, <laughs> two, uh, two questions here. And Charles, I know I've asked you this in the past and, and, and it comes and goes, but you know, given what I've read in the Globe and Mail, and I know that's not the best maybe place to always go to, but are you at all worried in Canada about the commercial market becoming regulated? Um, and has there been any discussion around this uh, with the government or with the regulator? Thanks, Doug. Um, look, I think the uh, the commercial lines market, now I'm not worried that it becomes uh, regulated from a pricing and, and product point of view. I think that, uh, and the reason why, you know, I, I'm not overly worried about that is the fact that, you know, coming into this crisis, the market was tight, meaning that the industry ROE was single digit uh, and uh, commercial property was under, and commercial PNC was under pressure, right? There was liability inflation in the system, and then the impact of uh, natural disasters put a fair bit of pressure on property. And there's been 10 years of soft market in commercial property. Now, people forget about that now, but there's been 10 years of hard market, of soft market in, uh, in commercial PNC. Then COVID happens, uh, and the investment income potential comes down. You get a fair bit of pressure on the, um, you know, claims side of things. Now, we've reserved for all of this in Q1, and we're in good shape, but the industry is under, has been under pressure as a result of claims. So clearly, the capacity issues that existed in the first place have been exacerbated by COVID, and then you layer on top of that the demands that reinsurers have made, um, you know, in terms of wording and so on, you have to acknowledge that there are areas of the market where capacity is tight. With COVID, there's been a number of class actions um, uh, on long-term care facilities, for instance, and, uh, and then there's moral hazard of vacant buildings that is also an issue. So. Long story, Doug, but I think the nuance is important here. In the high-risk areas of the market, take um, bars, uh, restaurants with heavy liquor liability, this part of the market was largely served by foreign operators, and a number of them left. And this has led to a capacity crunch on a small, very small portion of the market, because it's still very competitive in commercial lines. But a number of foreign operators left, and uh, this has created a bit of tension. Now, I don't think you bring capital back uh, in the industry by regulating. The problem is capital has left. Not people are, are doing extremely well in commercial lines. And I think that people understand this dynamic. That being said, solutions need to be found. So. We're leading a solution uh, with the industry to uh, insure uninsurable risk, 
and there's a number of mechanisms that are being put in place to, to address the issue here, but I don't think regulation will solve the problem. It's not that people are overcharging, it's because capital has left the system. And I don't think scaring insurers is the way to bring back capital in the system. And that's my sort of analysis of the situation. Uh, you know, we've been providing a ton of relief in commercial lines. We're growing our commercial lines platform. We've frozen rates for, um, for vulnerable customers. We've just announced a $50 million uh, relief program, you know, in that space. And, and quite frankly, the large uh, leaders in the marketplace are stepping up at the moment. The issue is a number of foreign operator in the high-risk space has left, have left. Okay. So it doesn't sound like the regulator is really breathing down your neck or there is that discussion going on. Like I get all your explanations and it's all absolutely logical. Um, I always think of regulatory being logical, but it doesn't sound like that's a real concern you're having right now. No, I, I think that there is a dialogue and where capital has left the system, we need to find solutions. And that's where the dialogue is taking place. Uh, but uh, if regulation won't solve the system, it'll make it worse, if not far worse, if you want my opinion. And my second question is a question I actually I just received, and it's, you know, the industry, I think you quoted the industry as having um, combined ratios above 100% and ROE still around 5%. It doesn't seem like that's really improved materially, uh, despite some of the favorable headwinds that 2020 um, has provided, and we're seeing some good results out of you and some of the others. Is there a certain segment of the market that's really performing absolutely horrendously, and then a certain segment of the market that's doing really, really well? I'm just so, surprised by yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, so I think there's two things. Doug. One of the things we've seen in the first half of 2020, which, you know, were we surprised, yes or no? I don't know, but uh, adverse development from the past in automobile insurance has been a problem. Uh, and, you know, we, we've been at it since 2016. Did a lot of heavy lifting. You've seen us take a cautious stance in reserve a few years back. I think that is taking place now at the industry level uh, and as such putting pressure on the overall performance in automobile insurance, even if you know, you could expect a benign sort of cost environment. Uh, commercial lines performance overall, first half of 2020 has been very bad uh, at the industry level. So, you know, depending on, on the province in which you operate, you see, you know, 105, 110-ish type uh, performance in commercial lines. And, and that's why, you know, my view is you've got a, a capacity issue, clearly an opportunity for us. And uh, but that is the nature of the uh, of the market, and hence the industry's result. You know, I expect things will get better this year, but uh, there's a fair bit of digestion to do in this industry to return to historical levels of uh, of performance from an ROE point of view, and that's why our view, Doug, has been, you know, uh, when we were asked before the crisis. How long will the hard market last? Darren had done a very good analysis last year to say we think it'll be 24 months. 
And, you know, this has been put on pause to a certain extent, you know, uh, depending on the line of business, but there's a lot of work left to do to improve the performance and, and the attractiveness of this industry for, say, average players. Uh, gladly, we've done that early on, and now I think the top line is benefiting and, and the, uh, the bottom line is doing well, and uh, that, that's how we operate as a firm. We've shown that in the past and, and trying to, uh, to win in this environment. This concludes the Q&A portion of our call, and I would like to turn it back to Ken Anderson for final comments. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today. Following the call, a telephone replay will be available for one week, and the webcast will be archived on our website for one year. A transcript will also be available on our website in the financial reports and filings archive. In closing, our fourth quarter 2020 results are scheduled to be released after market close on Tuesday, February 9th. Thank you again, and this concludes the call for today. Ladies and gentlemen, this does indeed conclude today's conference. Thank you once more for participating. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.